This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. Cassandra Brown is the co-founder of On Purpose Consulting Group, a nonprofit designed to help women live their lives on purpose, for purpose, and with purpose. She focuses on leadership, strategy, coaching, content, and community. For the last 12 years, she has also been working as a nurse, serving in different fields, including oncology, ER, and home care. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, um, we are talking under really strange circumstances. We're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, can you share how this has affected you? Um, yeah, so before it had reached, I live in Ohio, so before it had reached us, I'd been monitoring and tracking um, just globally what's been going on, following the CDC, the World Health Organization, because I'm a nurse. Um, and just, you know, preparing. And honestly, I was like, this this isn't a big deal. It's kind of like the flu. It's not. Um, and then March 11th, my world kind of came crashing down when my husband was the first one in our county diagnosed with it. Um, and the reason it was so um, traumatizing across the board was, number one, we live in a small rural community, about 195,000 people. Mm. Um, and we were not expecting it to hit us. We were not expecting um, it at all. So I'm, I'm going through everything. The hospital was kind of like, this is, this is insane. It was a rural hospital. Um, and they reacted very quickly, mm-hmm. but it was just from beginning to end, end because he was the first, it was a lot of just misinformation and like, this is what we do. No, this is what we do. No, this is what we do. Like changing very fast pace. Wow. Um, and um, he went from, so Dealing with that on the first day, I was put in quarantine immediately. Um, I thought it was, I thought they were overreacting. They weren't going to get the test back for three days. Mm. Um, I was just like, you know, this is insane. This can't be happening to us. Um, it was community acquired. We don't know where he picked it up from. Um, mm. We don't know if he picked it up from me being a nurse. I haven't, that I'm aware of, come into contact with anybody. Um, but several people in his office were then diagnosed after him. So we don't know where it came from. And it went from the health department to him being in ICU, it being all over social media. People, you know, knew that my husband was in ICU before I even told my parents. Um, So, like, it was just very, very traumatic and stressful from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, Saturday, he was diagnosed. The health department came out and, you know, made a statement. And then um, there was some mass hysteria in the community people reacted. Some people reacted inappropriately. Some reacted very well. Um, just a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff that I don't, doesn't even matter now. But, um, Sunday, my husband took a turn, um, and his oxygen wasn't getting any better. He's 38 years old, has a childhood history of asthma, no other 
like from everything that I read on the CDC's website, from everything that I was reading, mm. he wasn't in the categories that this should be a worry. So yeah. I wasn't worried. I just thought, okay, you're going to just symptom management. They're making a big deal out of nothing. Sunday, his color started changing. His oxygen started dropping. Um, I had been doing a lot of research on my end, just reaching out to my global community medically. Mm. Um, and I knew where he was heading and I knew that they would have to innovate early in order to save his life. Um, so I knew Sunday, I just had this feeling I had to get the girls out of the house. I was still in quarantine. Um, they went and stayed on a farm. They had 90 acres of quarantine to stay on at a friend's house, <laughs> um, which they were really upset about. Oh. Um, and they had no clue any of that was going on at the time. So oh. I got them out of the house and uh, the doctor of the hospital called and he said, hey, we've got to intubate him. He's just going downhill way too fast. Um, because I was a nurse, because right now, this is what people don't understand. Um, mm. You're not going to see yourself. You're not going to see your loved one. They're going to stay in a hospital room being connected. And I'm a nurse, so I know what's going on. I know mm. what the numbers mean. Um, and they didn't think he was going to make it. So their, their grace and mercy was, I've already I've been tested on PPE. I'm a nurse. I was allowed to go and sit in the room with him for six hours till he went to main campus Cleveland Clinic. Um, and I sat with my husband, I threw on worship music. At this point, we were in control of the situation. Mm. Um, we're like, this is no big deal. This is like the flu. Um, the minute he was intubated, I hadn't seen my husband's face. I hadn't touched him. And now I'm looking at him with tubes in his mouth, tubes, tubes everywhere. Um, and he is not with it. He's paralyzed. He's sedated. Um, and I, again, have been a nurse. For 14 years, so I know what everything is, and I just began to blast worship music in that room, pray over my husband. Um, I called the global prayer community um, because at this point, like they just they couldn't get a hold of it. Um, mm. The doctors are like, we don't know what to do. We're going to keep throwing everything at him. Like this is, you know, we're going to get him up to the main campus. Um, when he got up to the main campus, um, you know, my first phone call was at 6 a.m. Th that morning on Monday, and. Um, he, you know, he's two hours away from me. I'm not allowed to be with him. I'm only getting updates once a day from the doctor. Wow. I am a nurse. I know what's going on. Medically, I know what's going on. I'm reading the research. I know what they're doing. I'm asking questions that a lot of people weren't asking up till this point. Mm. Um, and so when he got up to Cleveland, the main campus, I'm like, what are you doing about this? This is what we're doing. What are you doing? So I felt better in the fact that, you know, Cleveland Clinic was very well prepared. Yeah. Um, but even they were saying, you know, we we don't know. We can't give you any definitive answers because we he's the first. Like my husband was the first, the first. Uh, Cleveland Clinic patient. So, so uh, what kind of uh, symptoms was he feeling that made him to decide to test for that since no one in the county had this? Um, it was actually a God thing. We we went to stat care, and I truly believe that. Um, we went to stat care because we just wanted him tested for the flu. Mm -hmm. um, I had been checking his oxygen levels because I have all the stuff, so I'd been checking him just to make sure, um, and I started noticing he was trending downward. Um, he was still in safe numbers, but just enough that I'm like, you've got pneumonia. Like, this has turned into pneumonia. He just had a high fever. That mm -hmm. was it. That's all he had, a high fever and a headache. So we were treating symptomly with um, Tylenol and Advil at the time, rotating, keeping him hydrated. I isolated him early. That's how me and the girls, we never got it. Um, proper hand hygiene, Jesus really protected. So he did a breathing treatment in stat care, and he says he passed out. Um, I was in the room with him. He, like, completely stopped breathing. He went gray. 
Like, he was out for a minute. We don't know if he, like, his heart stopped, like, oh, everything. Man. And so we went straight from stat care to ER. Got to ER. They're like, oh, you know, he just, he has a history of tachycardia, bradycardia syndrome. So it might have just tripped that. I'm like, okay, not a big deal. He just needs some fluids. Get a chest x-ray. Well, the chest x-ray came back. And they're like, we can't see anything. We're going to need to see to the chest. At that point, when they did the CT of the chest is when it was noted a radiologist called and said, and they weren't supposed to tell me this, but um, they did. (laughs) So um, a radiologist called and said, put him in quarantine. He has the same CT chest CT of the chest that other um, COVID-19 patients have. And that's the um, glass ground glass opacities, which is a very unique CT um, of the chest. So he actually hadn't even gotten the test. They just were able to look at the CT scan. And mm. I was frustrated because I'm like, there's there's not enough research for that. That's not, a, based on the CDC stuff, that's not a diagnostic tool. Mm. So like at, through this whole process, I had to throw out everything that I read and go find other information. Um, thankfully, I'm a part of like ER Facebook groups that are global and different groups that are actually medical professionals. And I got real-time information. And that's actually where I found the most helpful and useful information that wasn't from the CDC's website because it was just not fast enough. And then you had said that there was a time you spent six hours with him, but then there were other times you were not allowed to go in? Yeah, that was only once. And that was because they thought that would be the last time with my husband. Um, And the nurses had compassion. So they were like, it could be our husband in that room. Um, So that was the only time I was allowed in. And that was before he was being transferred. He was still at the rural hospital in their ICU. Mm. And they're a part of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. And so they transferred him up to main campus. And at that point, that was Monday of um, last week, which the date I think is 11 or 11, 3 316. Hmm. So Monday, I didn't hear anything from him. He was still pretty bad. Monday morning, I four o'clock in the morning, I just started hitting up my global prayer people. And I'm like, I need you to pray for my husband. Literally, I have doctors telling me they don't know what to do. So we're going to get on our face before the Lord. Um, and so that morning, he was not, he was completely on 100% life support, not breathing on his own. The doctors are like, what do you want done if he does code? Like, we need to know your advanced directives, like all of this stuff, your your funeral information, like all of that. Um, and, you know, just being prepared. And I'm I'm a 35-year-old woman with two little girls at home. Um, that was scary in of itself. Mm. Um, and then knowing that nobody but the staff could be in there. So day two, um, Amber, I think was the nurse's name, amazing little nurse. She called me and she's like, can you get his phone up here? He's awake and he's alert. He's lightly sedated, but he can do FaceTime. And so I had somebody, because they wouldn't let me leave quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, I only got permission for that one time. And so they wouldn't let me leave. So I had somebody drive it up almost two hours away to him to get him his phone. And mm-hmm. so we began communicating. He still had the tube in. He was not verbal up until Sunday of this week. So we literally were communicating where I would just stay on the phone with him um, and just talk to him. I was trying to keep him going because he was in a battle for his life. There's nothing like the ICU, um, lightly sedated, a tube down your throat, you're thirsty, you are starving, like you've got an NG tube in, you can't eat, you can't talk, you can't do anything for yourself. So I watched my husband struggle for seven days. Oh, my, that is tough. It definitely was. 
So uh, in in one of our correspondence, you said he had, um, was it something like a vision or a dream? Yeah, so yeah. Um, we, his parents and I took turns on top of a global community praying for him um, and people just sending us um, just scriptures and, you know, words and different things. A lot of the general ones were several people sent us and said, like, Lazarus, your husband will live. So mm-hmm. Nick parents and I began to quote scripture over him. Um, and so anytime we'd be on the phone when he'd be calling, you know, upset um, and just, I mean, watching your husband cry mm-hmm. with no sound and watching your son and we would just pray over him. We would sing over him. Um, and so this was going on, you know, from Tuesday to Sunday and he was determined to get that tube out and they wouldn't pull it. They were waiting for Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I went to bed that Saturday night and I'm like, Lord, he is not going to last one more day mentally. I don't think he can last. And I'm like, I need you to do something, move the hearts of these doctors, do something. And the next morning he called me and the tube was out and I was told he'd be on BiPAP for two hours. He wasn't even on BiPAP. His oxygen was the best. I saw it. And we did a phone call with him and his parents. And then afterwards he called me back and he was just weeping. And he said, Jesus is King. And, um, he he began to tell me what happened because he didn't tell me what his, his parents on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, he told them afterwards, but what he said was, I told God, there's no way I can make it. I was just being tormented every single night. Um, and he's like, and he shared some of the things and he's, he just said, I was just being tormented over and over again. And I was laying there and I heard a voice get out of that bed. You will not die here. And he said, when I came to the tube was out of my mouth. And I was holding it. The nurses were just in the room. And the best that they can come up with is that he coughed it out. So he woke up holding the tube in his hand. Yes. And he said, I was throwing up because it got stuck wherever it was, but it was attached to his mouth. And I watched them Mm. again. I'm assessing him as a patient as well as his wife. So I'm I'm checking for the tube to make sure everything he's alert and oriented. I talked to all my friends that work in LTAC. I'm like, have you ever heard of somebody coughing it out? or pulling it out when they're alert and oriented. She's like, trust me, they would not pull it out on their own alert and oriented. And I'm like, that's what I thought. And she's like, and I've never heard of anybody coughing out a tube. Wow. So the staff was, they were like, we don't know what to do. We've never seen this before. They were saying that in the room with him. And he's (laughs) like, I don't know what to do either. (laughs) So from then on, it it got better. It It began to get better. Yeah. Um, oxygen stayed up. He went from, I mean, he was on, um, 30% 30% of oxygen, which is a high dose of oxygen down that vent tube to five liters of oxygen through a nasal cannula, which from a medical side is a miracle. Mm. Wow, we t- Nick said it just felt like somebody was breathing into my lungs. Yeah, that's, that's a, an amazing miracle. And then, uh, so yesterday you go to pick him and then there's this note that has gone beyond viral. How did that oh start? <laughs> How did that start? Why did he think of writing that uh, message on that glass? What's the story of that uh, window? Um, he just, I mean, once he got out of that bed was the first thing that he wanted. He said, I want in the chair. I want out of the bed. And those nurses, like, they got him, they were amazing. They got him whatever he wanted. They got him a sandwich. They got him water. They got him whatever. And so he just began to weep with me. I've been a nurse for 14 years. I don't take my job home. So we don't talk about everything that I see or that I do. That's just a boundary that I have. So Nick got to experience what I do 
in my job. And he was overwhelmed with gratitude. He's like, these people are the hands and feet of Jesus. He's like, these people literally are the hands and feet of Jesus. I felt Mm. so much love when their hands were on me. I Mm. felt God's tangible presence. Like the, you know, so for him, even the, um, the, the cleaning lady, um, would just put her hand on the window and he knew she was praying for him. Mm. And she came in the one day and gave him a card and a rosary. And she said, I've been praying for a miracle for you. The nurse would be on the phone with me and she'd say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm singing chain breaker over him. Like <laughs> I am praying. Like, I mean, literally these, they were praying as much as I was. And so, um, I mean, he wanted to do something. And so we sat down together and he just weeps as he wrote this letter. And um, he's like, I've got to get this right. I've got to get this right. I'm going to have it do it the last day. The day that I leave, I want them to have this note because I know what they're walking into. Mm. He's the first. He's not going to be the last. Wow. So um, his note went. Then from there, they took a picture of it. Um, and they posted it on the Cleveland Clinic site. They kept his name and information out of it. Yeah. And it went viral. And, and then PR reached out to him. And they pushed the story, the news, um, the news places picked it up um and it has just gone crazy from there do you have a copy of it so you can read it for us for our listeners yes i do um so the window says this window has been the most impactful window in my life on days when i watched you work hard to keep me and others alive unable to thank you for the time that you poured into me and although i will probably never get the chance to pour that same love and support into you i want you to know I think you are all rock stars. I watched some of you have good nights and some of you have bad nights. Mm. But what was consistent every night was that you care for people. So today I leave this ICU a changed person, hopefully for the better, not only because of your medical healing and God's direction and guidance, but with me, the fact of knowing that there are such wonderful people dedicated to me, dedicated to the care and concern of others. And they blocked it out, but um, his said mm. he was being he was being cheeky. So he said um, Nick Brown won, and then they had jokingly said the Kung Flu <laughs> to make him laugh. So he put Kung Flu Zero, and I said, Nick, you can't put that on there. And he's like, I swear, I didn't think anybody but them would see it. <laughs> so they blocked that out. But uh, God bless each of you. So um, it just left them with it left them with hope. It was. It just reminded me of the 10 lepers that were healed and the one that came back that and thanked back. Jesus. Like, yeah. he came back and he wants to thank the people because they kept him alive. They they kept him going. Um, the doctors began to write on the thing and we'd have daily goals. And I'd ask them, what are the daily goals? What are we doing? Like, what do we need to remind him every single time we're on that phone? And so the, the one day Dr. Morales put up there, um, number one, take deep breaths. And so we'd force him to take deep breaths while on that vent. Um, number two, move your hands and feet. So it'd be like, let me see your feet, Nick. Like, let me see you moving. Let, let me see. And then the third was decrease vent settings. And then underneath he said, we will get you home. And I think we all just cried mm-hmm. because at that point I was like, he is going to come home. Like he is coming home. Um, my mother-in-law had just bawled and, uh, she, you know, cause I, I shut down after Monday, mm-hmm. um, when he went to the Cleveland clinic, I stopped all social media. I stopped everything. I literally locked myself in my bedroom with my phone and worship music. And because 
I knew that if I was going to pray and fight for my husband, I didn't need to read the 34-year-old that was dying of this with asthma, the 58-year-old that just died with, you know, the mm. same thing, because I, I literally decided that my husband was still six feet above ground, and I was going to fight for everything that I was worth to help him fight. Wow, that is, that's, that's powerful, just listening to that. And also his spirit of gratitude and to acknowledge, yeah. you know, the selflessness of those healthcare workers and their dedication to their work, you know, but also to care for him in that way. The spirit of gratitude is, is amazing. It really is. And it's beautiful. Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. Wow. So how did you cope uh, throughout all this um, tough experience for you and the family? Um, I, this was such a different virus because it's an isolating one. Um, you don't want to tell anybody your husband's the first COVID positive patient. Um, I had already built such a strong network of community that I had people dropping off meals and crying um, on my front porch, praying, um, just letting me know how much I was loved. Um, my friends sent me care packages checking on me daily, making sure things I forced myself. So during this time, the girls weren't at my house. So I literally was in this house alone. Um, mm. And I would force myself, how much did I drink today? How much did I eat today? How did I take my vitamins today? Because I knew this was an endurance run. Yeah. So I would force myself to take melatonin at night. My in-laws would take the night shift with my husband. I would take melatonin and sleep for eight hours. Not because I wanted to, but mm. because I had to. Self-care became huge in the season. So I would force myself to still drink my coffee. I would force myself to eat food. That was the hardest was eating. Mm. Um, because so I didn't you, want lost, to you lost appetite? Um, I've lost um, nine pounds so far. He lost 26. Um, and that's still with eating. But yeah, I had no appetite whatsoever. I was a ball of nerves. So I would, I would listen to um, relaxation worship music and lay on the floor. Um, when I'd have bouts of panic attacks, I would literally lay on the floor with my feet above um, my heart and just practice deep breathing. Um, I would journal. I would write. I would reach out to people that were safe that I could talk to and just, you know, cry and say, I miss my husband and I want him to come home. Mm. Like, those were things that I did. And I cried. That was the one thing. I cried a lot. Um, anytime I wanted to cry or felt it, I just did. Every mm. moment I felt something, I felt it in that time. I didn't try to shove it away or didn't try to be strong. I literally felt everything in the moment. It's good that you gave yourself permission to feel that. Most people don't. And mm. that's where we get a lot of PTSD when we don't feel it in the moment. We can't heal if we don't allow those things out. I think for those that are listening to your, your um, podcast, especially... Mm. All medical professionals, we're all scared. I am still, I'm, I'm going to go back to work once he's better. 
Mm. So um, they're projecting our peak time is going to be the end of April, beginning of May. And people are still not social distancing the way that they should. Um, And so I'm watching what's happening in New York. I'm watching um, what's going on. And honestly, this is the long game. And so it has never been more real to me. Um, compassion fatigue and burnout and really just the importance of self-care mm. because our healthcare workers, they need, they need to not push their emotions away. They need to cry. Um, there's a lot of things that are looking back when this is done that they've, you know, that has been misinformation or that has been done incorrectly mm. um, that we're being, I mean, we're not getting the proper PPE. These are real things that are happening to nurses and healthcare professionals. I know chaplains are not being allowed let in yeah. and for family members in this time, this is the scariest time ever because you have zero control whatsoever. Mm. And you're, I had to come to the realization that my husband may die alone in a hospital room. Wow. And so, that was a real reality. So how can we help families? Because, you know, I think sometimes the family get forgotten when a loved one is, is suffering from COVID-19 in the hospital. How can we as, as a, or as a chaplains or as a community reach out and help the family beyond, beyond I, cooking food and leaving it on the, by the door? Right, beyond that. Yeah. I think, you know, I've called people, like I said, I felt everything in real time. So I would, I, I had no problem. Now I had no problem calling my global church community and say, I'm scared. I need you to pray over me right now. And I mean, my friends that are pastors, Crystal and Doug Heisel out in California, I called them multiple times, just full of fear um, because, and I was honest with it. And like, they began to pray right instantly. So, I mean, just having people that are, we need faith right now. Like, we have facts. We have reality. We need faith. We need our chaplains more now than ever. Mm. We need them to be giving us, this is who God is. Mm. I came, not only did I come to the reality of, I am thankful Jesus healed my husband because I believe in that miracle, but I was in a place that Jesus, regardless of whether he lives or dies, I'm going to fight for him to live, and I'm going to hold that hope. But I know you will hold me, and I know you will be there for me, and your presence will still be here, even if he isn't. Mm. So and it, I think that... Go ahead. No, no, I was saying it looks like your faith um, played a big part in helping you cope through this. Yes. Uh, yeah. God's presence is tangible. I mean, God is close to those who mourn. God is close when we're feeling this. I mean, my husband will tell you, he's like, I felt God's tangible love in that room. He couldn't speak, but he felt it. He felt it through the the, the, the healthcare staff that was there. And now, yeah, you yes. you you are in a, in a very unique position, really, to help a lot of people, especially as a nurse, but also as someone who's gone through this tragic experience. And um, one of the things you highlighted, um, and you see, as a nurse, many nurses are pouring out, you know, compassion and love. At, uh, at what point do you have to recognize that, you know what, you have to take care of yourself? I write a piece, yeah. uh, I love a piece you wrote. Um, you said, every time we have to deal with a conflict, bear witness to trauma, violence, suffering, and pain with those whom we serve, it costs us. I, I found that to be very profound. Could you explain more on that, especially in this day and time where so many healthcare professionals are just pouring out like that? Yeah, so um, 
we bear witness to trauma. This is from a psychological, psychology standpoint, mm-hmm. um, because they've done a lot more research than healthcare has done in this. Um, they, you bear witness to trauma. Now, they bear witness in the way that, as a psychologist or a counselor, they, they listen to people's trauma. Yeah. Which can and it costs you something. It physically costs you for empathy for that muscle of empathy, and empathy helps people walk through hell. Um, so every time we bear witness to a conflict, every time we we witness a trauma, violent suffering, and there is no harder time to be a nurse when you have to tell family members, "I'm sorry, you have to leave. I'm sorry, you can't come in. I'm sorry." Like you're going to be in isolation. You know, these are the things we're getting creative with how we're communicating, but there's a whole lot of trauma. And so when we know that it's going to cost us something, we then need to take that cost and we need to refill. So that's why I, I mean, I'm sharing as much as I can on social media of encouraging nurses, take bubble bath, um, eat healthy, take your vitamins, take a walk, journal, talk with somebody. You know, that's another way that the chaplains can step in. Talk to your nursing staff. Mm. They're not going to want to. Make yourself available. Make yourself available to them. How can I pray for you? Can I pray? Like, the one thing that I just want so bad is, like, the blessing of the hand. Like, just pray over, you know, the staff. Grow the staff space. That was a side tangent. Sorry. Staying Mm. on topic of... So, with that... um, we have to do things to refill. I use burnout and compassion fatigue. The, the, the way of saying it is it's like winter is coming and you went outside in flip-flops and shorts. Hmm. We, we know what we're walking into. So you need to layer up. You need to layer up. And how you do that is building resilience. And you do that through self-care. And, this is, and, and that is... Hmm. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, you're speaking the truth. Uh, the, the importance of self-care the thing is sometimes people do not even know that they are suffering from burnout or compassion fatigue. For you, how did you recognize that? Um, so I recognized it several years ago when I was sitting in my bedroom with my lights off and um, binge watching Netflix, which is so out of my personality. I don't sit and watch TV. Mm. Um, and my husband actually came upstairs, and it was sunny, and the kids were downstairs with him, and he just asked me straight out, what is wrong with you? And for my husband to actually take note that something was wrong, and I looked at him, and I said, I don't know. I literally couldn't connect with those closest to me. So for me, my compassion fatigue showed up in the way that I couldn't connect with those closest to me. Was there something that happened or was it a combination of many stresses that you had witnessed uh, during your work? Um, I think there was one that just kind of tipped the scales. I'd seen a lot of different stressors. And the one that tipped the scales was I was taking care of a patient and I had built rapport with her and her daughter. Her daughter was going to school for nursing at the same school that I went to. Um, And, you know, just talking about this is how you do this and really just building relationship. And, um, I got a, the call light was hit from that room. And, um, when I went back there, the patient's tumor had blue and, um, I watched that patient bleed out in front of me and to build relationship with somebody and that trauma, it cost me and it cost me a lot. And so I had to learn to name this as compassion fatigue. And when I began to look at all the different um, symptoms of compassion fatigue, 
I began to see myself. Hmm. And so I then began to study this idea of compassion fatigue, what it looks like. I mean, we're taught as nurses on how to take care of people. We're not taught how to take care of ourselves. Hmm. Wow. And so as a nurse, that, that's something that I would love to educate other healthcare professionals on is you still have a soul. You still have who you are. You should not lose who you are. I can tell you nursing has changed me. It's made me a better person How? Um, to bear witness to other. Um, my first patient that I ever took care of was a pediatric palliative care um, with an inoperable tumor. I took care of that patient for two years. I was a better mother after that. I was less, um, less willing to yell at my kids. Um, my patience level is a lot more. I don't get upset about a lot of things that would have bothered me before I was a nurse. I was very, I was young. I was 21 when I started, but I was very immature and very selfish as a person. I think all 21 year olds are, and if you're 21 and you're offended, I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> I think our worldview is very, it's very much about ourselves. And I feel like nursing has, um, I tell people I learned, you know, how to build ministries and, you know, do the business side in church, but I learned how to, be a minister as a nurse. Mm, that's beautiful. In your work with compassion fatigue, you list um, different ways how people can practice self-care. And you said that would be physical self-care, spiritual self-care, emotional self-care, mental self-care, and relational self-care. You have anything to expound on, on any of those? Because those are all vital aspects of humanity. Yeah. So um, I'll start from physical. Uh, physical self-care is, you know, exercising, number one, and taking care of your body. Like your body will tell you um, when it's mad at you. And a lot of nurses suffer and, you know, healthcare professionals suffer from back issues. Um, you know, a lot of people that deal with trauma suffer from GI issues. So making sure that you're taking care of your body, eating healthy, eating foods, um, not because they feel good going in, but because they're good for you going in. So making sure you're not eating a lot of sugars, um, you're not drinking a lot of wine. Um, there are, you know, a lot of different things like that. Exercise helps release endorphins and helps you physically to release stress and get those stress chemicals out of your body. Mm -hmm. So taking, you know, stretching, deep breathing, all of those things from a chemical perspective, help your body to relax and keep your body strong. Um, spiritual self-care, having, for me, having a relationship with Christ, you know, talking to God daily, journaling, reading my word, listening to worship music, there's so much negative things. So having my spirit just fed in that way helps me to keep my hope. Um, emotional self-care, making sure that I have my pulse on my emotions. Am I angry? Um, my go-to emotion is anger. When I'm angry, there's something else that's underlying that I'm not dealing with. Mm -hmm. So making sure that I'm dealing with my emotional self-care. Am I talking with somebody? Do I need to talk to somebody about my emotions? Do I need to talk to somebody about how I'm feeling? As a nurse, we don't like to do that. As somebody who's trying to be strong for everybody else, your first initial response is to not tell anybody that you're not a solid rock and it actually does a disservice to yourself and those closest to you. Um, mental self-care like, are you shutting off mentally? Are you having, um, 
can you shut your brain off at night? Do you need to constantly have something to help calm you down, whether that is pharmaceutical or, you know, drug-oriented or um, alcohol-oriented? Learning to shut off our brains, learning to allow our brains to relax, that's something we have to do. So going for a walk, sitting in silence is my favorite thing to do. My husband laughs at me because I literally will have the house silent. I love to sit in silence. Um, it helps to rest my mind. <laughs> like My life is chaos. I, I sit in silence because it rests my mind. I don't. There are times that I don't want to think. When I sleep at night, I want to fall asleep. I don't want to lay there and worry and think about everything. Mm. Um, and, and then relational self-care. It is vital to have relationships that feed you. As somebody who is has the muscle of empathy, we're naturally drawn to train wrecks of people. It's mm. who we are. We are the fix-it people. We want to fix people. And so what I've had to learn in my life is surrounding myself with people that are emotionally healthy mm. um, and not people that need me. Mm. That's life-changing because then I'm not in a codependent relationship. Yeah. And it doesn't pull from my empathy that I need to give to others. I mean, my friends still use my empathy and I use theirs, but it's a community. And so making sure that you are in healthy relationships that feed you, that you're going and spending time with friends that just make you feel better. Like relationships matter. Our, we were met for relationships. So, you know, assessing your relationships. Who am I in relationship with? Are they constantly negative? Are they constantly, I don't want to talk to, you know, certain people first thing in the morning because they want to give me the list of everything that's gone wrong. I want to talk to people that are like, the sun is shining and the day is amazing and this is what God did today and how are you feeling? How's everything going? Like, those are the people I want to talk to. Compassion is not a short sprint. We are living in an endurance run and we all need to endure. And so we need to assess how we're doing. And it's okay to say that I'm scared. It's okay to say, you know, that we're all scared. It's okay to live in those moments. But let's let's give hope. Let's give Jesus. Let's let's be the hands and feet of Jesus in the same way that those people were for my husband. Mm. Let's go support them. Let's give them everything that we've got to help them to do what they need to do because this is a team. And you know, those that are listening you are a vital part of that team. Find creative ways where you can start something, um, whether it's doing um, phone chats every single day, doing a phone devotional and getting it out to a list of all the staff of wherever you are. Mm. Getting into the hospitals, not just serving food, but saying, hey, let me just give you a devotional. Let me give you a scripture and then let me pray for you. Those people need prayer. Mm. Get creative. This is your time. I truly believe that this is the time and we need you more than ever. So how can people get a hold of you in case somebody wants to get a hold of you? Um, yeah, so you can find me on Facebook. Um, I might be taking a couple of days to get back to you since Nick's thing went viral. <laughs> um, we're getting hit on all sides, but you can find me on Facebook, um, Kathy Brown, or you can find me um, on Cassandra Brown's I think is my stuff. Sorry. I'm like, yep. CassandraBrown.com um, or on purpose consulting is um, our nonprofit. We help women on www.onpurpose. Yeah. 
I'm checking it real quick. I'm sorry. Okay, I was okay. not prepared for that question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited for everything else. On Purpose <laughs> Consulting Group is the other one. Like, I'm on fire for Jesus right now. Um, but And you can find me on Instagram um, at Cassandra851. So um, they can find me any place. Social media is the fastest place. If they want um, my contact information, I can give it to you too. And um, you via email, I will talk to anybody. Oh, thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Mm, okay, bye. Bye. That was Cassandra Brown. Uh, she's passionate about helping those who help others to understand the cost of caring and how to effectively combat fatigue. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for joining us and for listening to this episode. This show is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios and our engineer is Brian McKenna. Thank you for listening. Thank you.